Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we need your help, Lord. Help us. We need you. We need you, Lord. Help me uh, not to make too much of this moment, but not to forget it either. God, prepare me for the valleys and the bends and the curves in the road ahead and help me to stay steadfast, keeping my hand uh, to plow, Lord. God, I pray for everyone here that nobody would be able to leave today thinking, man, John Lim must be special. God really must love John Lim, but Lord, help us to see how we can all serve you in different ways. You call us to different things in life, Lord. And many who are first are going to be last, Lord. Help us to just steadfastly love you and serve you all our days. God, as we're going to see in Scripture, there is an enemy in our midst. There is an adversary, a devil, that seeks to destroy all that you're doing. Help us, Lord, to be sober-minded and watchful, to be wise. Shine your light on us, Lord, uh, so that we wouldn't go astray. Help us in this, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're a football fan, I'll give you a moment to just say a cheer for the new NFC champs, the Eagles. Um, they, they interviewed middle linebacker Ray Lewis of the Ravens uh, because he and his defense were sort of uniquely able to uh, defeat Tom Brady and the Patriots at their peak. And when he was asked, what was the secret, what was the key? He said it was in studying our opponent, sort of in a mysterious way. Years later, it came out that the Ravens had discovered that there was a fatal flaw in that Patriots offense. It was one linebacker. And when he would take his stance, he would position his hand in such a way that they knew to look for it, they saw it, and they knew if it was going to be a run play or they knew if it was going to be a pass play from that. They kept that a secret, and they used that to defeat the Patriots and go on win the Super Bowl in 2013. If tennis is your sport, um, Andre Agassi lost to Boris Becker three times in a row in the 80s. But then after that, for the next 11 times they would meet, Andre Agassi beat Boris Becker 10 of the 11 times. Boris Becker would complain to his wife and say, it's like he's reading my mind. Andre Agassi would come out and say that in studying his opponent, he found that when Boris Becker would go to serve, he had a tick and he would stick his tongue out either in the middle of his mouth or on the side of his mouth, and he knew exactly where Boris Becker was going to serve the ball. We're going to find out in Matthew 4 today that we have an enemy, and we're going to do our best to try to study our enemy in order to reach victory. Uh, we're, we're in a 66-week journey through the Bible. After 40 weeks in the Old Testament, uh, we're, our sermon series is entitled Hark. We watched Jesus get baptized last week, and now we're going to watch him be tempted in the wilderness. If you are not yet a Christian and you're sort of a curious outsider, like a skeptical person considering Christianity, a reasonable approach would be to start by reading the New Testament. And in my Bible, I only have to flip one page before I get to the character named Satan. At first, you might find this concept of Satan maybe childish, unrealistic. So I hope our approach today helps you. And then for, for those of us who have been walking with the Lord, I hope you, you find value today in studying our opponent. To get us started, uh, what we have to do is we have to cut through a lot of unhelpful ideas 
about this character, the devil. You might think about an image of him being cartoony with horns and a pitchfork, or, or maybe it's a grotesque, kind of a disgusting, evil image. But whatever it is, we've been taught that the devil is clearly visible and recognizable. Uh, that, that's, that's not what the Bible presents. Satan's more like a double agent, a secret agent, working without being seen. He isn't just... Um, the advocate for blatant evil, like, ooh, should I pay for this or should I steal it? No, he's much more cunning than that. He wants to shift your view of right and wrong. Images in the Middle Ages showed, like Dante's Inferno showed Satan as like the king of hell, tormenting and prodding and poking at, uh, at sinners. And uh, this is also not in the Bible, Hell exists to punish Satan. He has no authority there. Where does Satan want to be? Uh, he, he actually wants to be here with us. So, no, that's, that's uncomforting. As we talk about spiritual warfare and the existence of spiritual beings, I realize this sounds quite different than what a lot of people believe. What I can offer is that the Bible's view of the devil fits quite well into life as we know it. Believing in the devil actually helps life make more sense and helps us reconcile why things are just the way they are. Why is there so much brokenness in the world? In my workplace, in my family, in my own heart, in the streets, on the internet, across nations. This world is filled with decent people that holds a values like love and peace. But why is it that Good people have ways of hurting each other so much. We've all experienced that. Here's how the Bible describes Satan in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our defense against Satan is to have sober minds, to be watchful. Satan wants you to live a confused life, believing lies, and he does not want you to explore the reasons for your hurting or the reasons for your lack of contentment. He doesn't want you to find the lies that he's planted deep, deep into our culture. So we'll do our best today to study his schemes, allowing God's word to be a light to our feet, pushing back darkness. So we'll start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus was just baptized. He had this moment of validation from God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit leads him out. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the desert to be alone, to be with wild animals, to be vulnerable and to be hungry. And it's at this moment that Satan decides that he's going to take his opportunity to strike. The stakes couldn't be higher here. The, like All of eternity hangs in the balance, and we're going to see a battle or a fight. We're going to see a confrontation, uh, but it's not going to be overt. It's a battle over truth, faith, and righteousness. Jesus was sent to the earth to save it, and Satan is going to attempt to disqualify Jesus by tempting him. So let's be watchful together. This is verse 3. 
And the tempter came and said to him, if, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, if, you, if you're the son of God, just give yourself something to eat. Satan was tempting Jesus to put his very, very real physical needs ahead of spiritual reality. At the end of Jesus' life in Gethsemane, Jesus prays, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Satan knows something, that Jesus knows the same thing, and that's that our souls and our bodies are connected. Jesus was malnourished in the last stages of starvation where your body starts digesting proteins from your muscles and organs. And so when, when, when the devil's attempting to tempt Jesus, he attacks the flesh. Satan wanted Jesus to use his power to make food, which for Jesus would have been wrong. His spiritual obedience was more important than his physical hunger. Jesus maintained faith in God, knowing that God would provide food at the proper time and that this temptation to take a shortcut would be a collapse of faith. We're going to keep moving through the passage. We're going to loop back later. But let's see what's in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God, to the test. It's crafty what Satan is doing here. He is taking liberties with Scripture, and he is tugging on Jesus' heartstrings. Let's see what that means. Look what Satan says. Wait, what's your, what's your relationship to God, Jesus? Oh, you're, you're his son. Huh. Father and son. You, you miss him, don't you? Wouldn't it be nice uh, if, he, if he would feel him here with you? If he would send angels and the spiritual experience for you to feel his warmth, his touch, instead of being here trusting in him by faith in the wilderness surrounded by wild animals. Jesus has a right understanding of the whole Bible, and he says, I'm not putting God to the test. The Holy Spirit led me here, so here is where I'm going to stay. I'm putting my loneliness, my need for care behind my obedience to God. Scoreboard, Jesus 2, Satan 0. Let's notice Satan tempts with, he says, Jesus, do a miracle. Jesus, we can get angels to help you. And what weapons does Jesus use to defend himself? The same Holy Spirit we have leading him. God's word, the same word we have. And faith in God. Trust in God, just like we can do. Jesus is resisting temptation as a human as an example for us. Here's the third temptation, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. 
And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan ramps up this temptation and offers, puts an offer on the table that couldn't be any higher. You know what this is like? This is like those old commercials, like, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Um, but it's, it's that times infinity. What would you do for a 20% pay raise? Satan's saying to Jesus, what's your price? Jesus, three times in the book of John, refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. Satan is not writing a check he can't cash. This is a real offer that's on the table. If Jesus were to bow to Satan here, he would have authority over this whole world. And for a moment, I just want us to consider how good that could have been. If Jesus, with all his wisdom and power and God's blessing, ruled all the nations of this world, I think there would be world peace. I think there would be racial harmony. I think we'd have an uncomplicated tax code. (laughs) But what would be the cost? If Jesus fell to temptation, he would not be perfect. He would not be able to die for the souls of mankind. So look what Jesus chooses here. Does God care about people suffering, injustice, social issues, the economy? Absolutely he does. But it was God's will that he would send Jesus Christ to save us eternally. And Satan was willing to make the trade. And to this, to this day, many take that same trade of trying to gain the whole world but losing their souls. So Jesus doesn't fall into temptation. Satan flees. Angels attend to Jesus. Jesus has achieved victory over temptation. Was this confrontation what you expected? There's no fireballs, no pitchforks. Satan tempted Jesus with unique weaponry. He used real observations about Jesus' wants and needs. He used the Bible. He used lies. And each of Satan's attacks were actually against Jesus' faith. Jesus tempted Jesus to stop believing that God would provide. Satan tempted Jesus to stop believing in Scripture and to lean on his feelings. Satan tempted Jesus to remove his faith from God and to put it in Satan. Against these attacks on his faith, Jesus found victory through faith. Against Satan's attacks Against these attacks that Satan brought on his faith, Jesus found victory through faith. These verses give a look at what that looks like for us. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot work your way to victory against Satan. You can only overcome him with belief in God. And 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Victory. How do we achieve victory? By faith. And Satan is willing to do anything and everything to attack your faith. He's willing to offer happiness, health and wealth, and comfort. He'll even give you bad Bible teaching. But his aim is to prevent you from having faith in God or to confuse you and discourage you and frustrate you from walking by faith.
So let us study the enemy. Jesus withstood temptation, so how can we? Uh, Let's look at where Satan will attack. I don't expect this to be enjoyable in the same way that the Eagles probably don't like watching film of the Chiefs scoring a bunch of touchdowns, but since we have an enemy, let us study him. There's four of these. Satan will attack the part of you that is hungry, the part of your flesh that is weak. Being human means having a human body. For me, I crack my knuckles without thinking about it. Uh, I reach for two Oreos and I end up eating more. And that's just part of being human. God designed our bodies. Our bodies are good. We should be thankful for them. The Holy Spirit dwells in the life of every Christian. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As long as we are breathing, Jesus will attack our flesh and our hungers. And we can look to Jesus as an example. He didn't take shortcuts. He would not eat bread that God did not provide. Be on guard. Satan will tempt your flesh. Second thing, he'll attack with the twisting of God's word, attacking your faith. This second attack was so sophisticated. Satan was offering Jesus a miraculous experience to be held by angels' arms, to have God the Father come to his aid. And those all must have sounded so good to Jesus in that moment. Satan has been doing this throughout church history, and he does it today. He uses a deep awareness of our felt needs and our experience, and then he pours in a misinterpretation of Scripture. He grabs our hearts, affirms our feelings, and then twists the Bible, tempting us to go off course. Satan wants watered-down religion that focuses on you, on your comfort, on your health and your wealth. And it's so sneaky that it's like this funky chili recipe of Bible verses and fake solutions and shortcuts and worldly wisdom. And before you know it, you're going to be drawn away from an active faith in God. So let's be on guard, sober-minded, and watchful. Let's read God's word. Let's study it together and hold fast to a confession of true faith. Next, Satan will attack your contentment. I'm seeing that the Christian life is pilgrimage, one step in front of the other towards an eternal rest with God, and we can't take anything with us. We are moving closer to God in friendship with him, falling in love with him more every day, growing in deeper service and effectiveness to him. And it's easier said than done, but we should pay attention to our desires. What are they saying to us? The temptation is to count on the next thing to make us happy or content. The last thing didn't work. The last relationship didn't work. Maybe it'll be the next promotion, the next app, this new experience, this vacation I'll go on. Then finally, I might be content. Be on guard. Satan does not want you to be content, but he wants you to keep chasing it from false things that will not bring contentment. Number four, and we'll spend some time here, Satan will attack your understanding of sin. Uh, We've gotten this far without talking about sin, so let's mention it now. Satan was tempting Jesus to sin. In his most sophisticated attacks, and the best things that he could bring against Jesus, notice no big-ticket sins were used. 
it's comfortable to talk about sin when we have a very narrow view of it. That, oh, oh, sin, that's, that's a thing those people do. Whoever those people are for you, to think that it's something removed from us. But a biblical view of sin is broad and deep, and it becomes uncomfortable to talk about, so we talk about it less. And when we don't talk about sin, uh, a lie creeps its way in. A lie creeps its way in that maybe if we manage our lives this way and if we make all the good decisions and not the bad decisions, maybe we can be good enough for God. That by our own effort and goodness, we can get our acts together and please God by being good. You may have wanted to keep your standard of living good so you found a good church with good people and you're trying your best to be good. Well, we just looked at how Satan is actually attacking. How are you doing at holding the line? Are you standing up against temptation and feeling confident? As we try and look at and understand the enemy, it seems like Satan has been studying us. He's figured us out. We are fighting to call ourselves good enough, and he's tempted us without us even knowing it. The Bible says this in Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned, and that we all fall short of the glory of God. Sin is falling short of God's good design for humanity, either by commission or omission, either by doing something that God said thou shalt not do, or by failing to do something that you know God has called you to do. And there's a way with sin that we just talk about this like up here in spiritual la-la land and Sunday morning talk. But let's talk practically. How did last year go for you? 2022 is in the books. We can't change a single thing about it. Last year, did you do anything that was not pleasing to the Lord? Or in any way, did you fall short of the calling that God put on the Christian life? And did you fail to do any of the things God wants you to do and called you to do? In any way, have you been disobedient to God? I think we're all in the same boat. And let's, let's just think even broader do you think Satan tempted and told lies to your parents? Do you think Satan tempted and told lies to your grandparents? If we think about it, I think Satan has had a key role in a lot of things, probably everything that's happened in this world since Genesis 3, prowling around like a lion seeking to devour. In our battle against sin, the enemy has infiltrated our front lines, and he is in the camp. <clears throat> we are past the point of temptation, and Satan has made sin a part of our normal. Have you ever considered that there's sin in your life that God hasn't yet revealed to you, that you're past the point of temptation and living with a pattern of sin? God helps there. I can testify that God helps there. We can pray to God and say, God, please show me the, the unseen sin in my life, God, and come in, shine a light on it so I can see it, so that I can repent and be more like you and live for you better. 
And God will do that for you over time. But any time that God shines a light on our sin, it is not a pretty sight. <clears throat> Satan has been busy. He has tempted us in ways we didn't even notice, and we've been swimming in sin without even knowing it. Hurting ourselves and others, chasing our desires, and only finding more discontent. And even when we are aware of Satan and temptation, try as we might, we find ourselves powerless and weak to fight bad habits and addiction. Paul said it well in Romans 7. He said, it's like we keep on doing the things we try not to do, and we can't even do the things that we know we ought to do. And, and Paul just cries out, who can save me from this body of death? And then the next verse, uh, he gives the answer. Jesus can. Jesus is aware of our sin problem. That's precisely why he came. That's why he fought this spiritual battle against Satan, and that's why he won, because he knew that we could not. So we can declare that song we sang earlier, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I can look and see him there that made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Hebrews puts it this way, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I hope you see it. I hope you can't not see it. Your whole life there has been a lion devouring your joy, attacking your faith, feeding you lies, and Jesus knows. He sympathizes with you because he loves you. And you can cling to him in confidence and find life in the name of Jesus Christ. Every good church, including this one, uh, is made of sinners saved by grace. Please don't confuse us for people who uh, think we can be good enough on our own. We have come to understand the depths of our sin, the hopelessness and powerlessness over temptation, our imminent and unavoidable drowning, our need for salvation. And then God's grace shined on us, and we found a matchless one, a firm foundation, a rock of ages, a savior. The English hymn writer August Toplady, Augustus Toplady, wrote Rock of Ages to describe the moment when we trust in Christ. Johannes Ortel painted this painting in the 1800s to depict it. Let me read from that hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. 
Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. In this reality that we live in, in our powerlessness against temptation, Jesus doesn't provide a to-do list or a coping mechanism. Jesus provides himself. Jesus was victorious over temptation and lived a sinless life because he knew that you couldn't do it on your own. He endured suffering and mocking and pain and died a death on a cross, knowing that that was precisely what all of us deserved. He submitted his life to God, once and for all, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that you and I can cling to him, our rock of ages, and find life in his name. If you sense your need for Jesus today for the first time, I invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. I invite you to tell a friend that that you're ready to cling to this rock of ages, to be free from the powers of Satan that you haven't maybe even noticed until now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, uh, we see our sin, uh, the ways in which we have not done what you have purposed for us to do, Lord. In your good design, you wanted only good things for humanity, and Lord, we've made a mess of it. And Satan has had a role in that, Lord. Let us hide ourselves in you, Lord. We thank you for the cross that you carried. We thank you for the blood that was shed. We need you, Jesus. Every hour, we need you. And we accept your sacrifice in our place, your body and your blood given for us, Lord. For anyone that is trying to figure this out and they're spinning from being lost and trying to untangle the lies that they've been told, Lord, let us come around them like a church. Give them bravery to speak up. Give us the bravery to walk with them so that we could walk with them, Lord, and guide them in the way of life everlasting, in the way of Jesus Christ. We find salvation in your name, and we thank you for it, Lord. Prepare our hearts to feast at this table, cherishing you and all you did for us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.